0: Well, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Title of my message is Acceptable Worship. So, after 11 chapters of primarily doctrinal instruction, Paul now begins to turn his attention to the practical matters that he wishes to address. And I want to put this statement up here. You cannot have good pragmatics, practical living, without good dogmatics, doctrine. So the way we live our life as believers rests upon the foundation of doctrine, teaching, instruction. So while godly Christian living was addressed to some extent in Romans 1 through 11, particularly in Romans 6 and 7, it now takes precedent in the remaining chapters of this great book. And Paul begins in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 with a real strong exhortation to sound Christian living based on what he had previously written about the majesty of God at the conclusion of Romans chapter 11, where he says in verse 33, 33, oh, O the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it will be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. So I pose this question to you. How should a Christian respond to such a glorious God? By offering a very special kind of sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you in light of the glory of that God that he just concluded writing about in the 11th chapter, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now I'm going to be just preaching on verse 1, but I read both verses here, because not only are they the best known verses in the book of Romans, and have become the subject of more sermons from Romans than any other verses taken together, I think it's a sin of omission to just cite one. Right? At least for me. Now Paul addresses this to his brethren. I beseech you, brethren, fellow believers, Christians, m- members of the household of faith, people who aren't saved cannot possibly understand this verse or pl- nor apply it. And he uses the word, I beseech, which is parakaleo, which means to call near or alongside to someone to summon someone to you so as to hear from you. Now, many translations have "I exhort you," "I exhort you," "I entreat you," uh, "I implore you." The Holy Spirit is the Paracletos; He's the divine comforter; He's our helper. John fourteen sixteen is. He's called in to help us, to comfort us, to exhort us, and to encourage us. And Paul is now calling the believers. He's urging them to do something special. Now, parakaleo, that he uses here for the word beseech, is mentioned as a spiritual gift here in Romans chapter 12, verse 8. It's a spiritual gift. Some people really have the gift of exhortation. They know how to come alongside somebody and exhort them. The New Testament is full of examples of this word. Paul was constantly exhorting Christians. And look, we all, we all don't have the same spiritual gifts, so you may not have the gift of exhortation like someone does, but are you called to exhort people? Don't you have the responsibility to encourage, to comfort people, to counsel people? Yes, yes. So this is, this is uh, in, in the Greek, it's in the indicative mood. Moods are forms of verbs that express action, if you forgot that. The indicative mood, which is used here, assumes that the action of the verb is real. It's not potential. The subjunctive mood, little grammar here, is the mood of probability. And the imperative mood is the mood of command. This is not in the imperative mood. This is in the subjunctive mood, or the uh, indicative mood. So it's not technically a command. It's, It's less than a command, but more than a suggestion. That's how I would put it. It's a strong apostolic exhortation that comes from deep within Paul's heart. It's the language of grace, not law. Paul says in Philemon's, and there's only one chapter in the eighth verse, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting or proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. That's grace. Being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now now look at that for a moment, the ground of his appeal. He's saying, I, Paul, am appealing to you, Philemon, as one who is a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and the aged, one who is mature in Christ. So there is more strength of an appeal when it comes to people like that. It be kind of like me saying to you, "I I appeal to you, brothers and sisters." As your pastor for 32 years, I, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, as someone who is old in the Lord. And that has a little bit more kind of a strength to it, you know, than maybe somebody, you know, very young saying a similar type of things. So it's coming deep from within Paul's heart. In Acts fourteen twenty-one, on their first missionary journey, it says, and when they, Paul, and the group with him had preached the gospel to the city of Derby and it taught many. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. I would say press on, right? Exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. There will always be opposition to the kingdom of God to the things of God, the word of God, the gospel of God. And Paul said, expect that. You're not going to get to heaven without going through the road of tribulation in life. 1 Corinthians 1.10, same word. Now I beseech you. And you, you just sense this coming from deep within him. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Look, we went through a trying time with two years with, with the COVID interruption. And I was, as your pastor, appealing to you, urging you, beseeching everyone to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace so that there would be no divisions among us. Jude 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you, beseech you, that you, would, you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now there are some things that are worth fighting for and some things that are not, but the faith once delivered is worth fighting for, right? With the right spirit, right? Speak the truth in love. But in all those verses I just read, you can sense the strong appeal in every one of them, just as Paul is now doing in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. And the basis for the exhortation that he is about to make is the mercies of God. I beseech you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God. Because of the mercies of God, which the Roman Christians had received. And I think that Paul is referring to the the mercies of God throughout chapter 1 all the way through verse 11 in the book of Romans. I think that's the mercies that he's referring to here. Mercy is the undeserved compassion of God that we have received because of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3, Paul says, Blessed be God, even the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Where do you go when you need comfort? You go to the God of all comfort. You go to the Father of all mercies. There there is nowhere else to go. I remember somebody telling me one time, it was a very difficult situation, their, one of their loved ones had disappeared. They didn't know where, where she was. And he came to me and we prayed. And he says, I said, how are you doing? He says, I just cast myself on the mercy of God. And that's what we do. There are times when we can't do anything else. Nobody else. Nobody else has the balm of Gilead that can heal and change us. So we cast ourselves on the mercies of God. Psalm 86.5, For thou, Lord, art good. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. The Hebrew word rav, for plenteous there, denotes abundance, great abundance. And I think it signifies the depth of God's mercy. His well of mercy never runs dry. Praise God for that. There is a fountain filled with blood. Right? That's the fountain of God's mercy drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all. All their guilty stains. Plenteous in mercy to all them that call upon thee. That signifies the breath of God's mercy. It extends to the whole world of sinners who are in the grip of Satan's power. And we need to see that. We can get upset about all the things we're seeing, about the protests, you know, for a woman's right to take her baby. Everything else that we see going on. I was telling somebody yesterday, I walk around the block, and there's one house that has all these signs up there, Black Lives Matter, love reigns here. No, you know, all of the the woke all of the woke-isms. And I used to walk by there, and boy, I thought, I just, just hope they, I wish they'd come out in the yard sometimes so, so I can have a word of conversation with them, you know? And, uh, and, you know, lately I've been walking by, and I stop, and I just pray right in front of that house. I said, God, they know not what they do is pray for their souls. 1 John 5.19 And that we, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in what? Wickedness. The International Bible Encyclopedia gives this definition of wicked according to the Bible. The state of being wicked, leave this up here for a little bit, the state of being wicked A mental disregard for justice, righteousness, truth, honor, virtue, evil in thought and life, depravity, sinfulness, criminality. Every person without Christ is a rebel against God. They are a criminal in their heart. Against God. They are wicked. People calling for abortion. Did you know that the mayor of New York City, what was his name? Eric Adams or whatever it is, yesterday made a public statement, public statement saying that he will support a woman's right to abortion right up to the time of delivery. That's wicked. The man who went into Buffalo yesterday in a grocery store and shot 13 people, killing 10 of them. That is wicked. After the Celtics, Boston Celtics, and and the Milwaukee Bucks game the other night, outside afterwards, 19 people were shot. The police recovered nine guns basketball game that is wicked we live in a world of wickedness what russia is doing against the ukraine and places all over the world only god can rescue us only christ can save this world and this is the wicked world that christ entered as the sinless son of god son of man to save john three sixteen says what For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The breath of God's mercy is in that verse. Romans 5.20 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Because, you know, without the law there was no sin. In a sense, you just really didn't know. It just just cataloged sin. It specified sin. That's what the law did. But then he says, But where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, praise God. Grace that is greater than what? All our sin as we sing. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So Paul's appealing to the Romans here on the basis of the mercies of God. And he uses a unique word for mercies there in Romans chapter 1. It's used five times in three different forms in the the Greek New Testament, meaning to exercise pity. So really what it is, is a pitying cry from the heart, from deep within the heart, usually at another person's suffering. So we, we link it to compassion. But Paul is just pouring out his heart here. This is what he's doing based on the mercies of God. You know, Jesus had compassion on the multitude because he said they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd are vulnerable to spiritual predators. Sometimes wolves dress in sheep's clothing. They don't spare the flock. How did David begin his psalm of repentance that we read earlier? He said, have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out. My transgressions. His transgressions at that point were grievous. He's appealing to God's loving kindness. The multitude of his tender mercy to blot them all out. The response to God's tender mercies, what should it be? Psalm one sixteen twelve: 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Look, we have a debt we could never pay, right? Jesus satisfied the debt in its entirety. But what shall we render to the Lord for all of his goodness toward us, for his mercy toward us? So here's Paul's response to the mercies of God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Present means to continually give or yield your bodies to God. Back in Romans 6, verse 12, Paul said, Therefore, sin is not to reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the parts of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves. Same idea. Present yourselves to God as those who are a life from the dead, and your body's parts as instruments of righteousness for God. That's the New American Standard. It gets very particular. The parts, the members of your body. That would include all the parts of our body, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, our stomach, everything. We're to present it to God Spurgeon said, it's once hunger, thirst, cold, may become occasions of sin, leaning to memory, oh, it's too cold in here. And then somebody else is going, it's too hot in here, right? It, it seems like life is a battle for being contented. Because it's hard to be content. He says, its wants, hunger, thirst, cold may become occasions of sin by leading to murmuring, envy, covetousness, robbery. Its appetites may crave excessive indulgence and unless continually curbed will lead to evil. Its pains and infirmities, though engendering impatience and other faults, may produce sin. People can speak out against God, slander God because of the difficulties that they're feeling. Its pleasures can readily become enticements to sin, lawful pleasures. Its influence upon the mind and spirit may drag our noble nature down to the groveling materialism of earth. Rather than setting our affections on things above, we've set them upon the things of the earth. 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is without his body, but he that commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. What do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? This is really where it begins. The recognition of the fact that we this, this, we call it our body, but our body is not our own For you are bought with a price. Jesus redeemed you. Body, soul, and spirit. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit which belong to Him. It's my body. I can do whatever I want with it, right? That's the cry. That's the cry of the abortion crowd. They don't understand. They don't understand. Because they don't know Christ. As you preach the gospel to yourself every day, you are contemplating the mercies of God anew. If the goodness of God led you to repentance and faith in Christ, the mercies of God, Paul says, should lead to the continued dedication of your body to Jesus, to Him. Now, Paul will go on here in Romans chapter twelve, and he's going to talk about serving others in the body of Christ with our spiritual gifts. But Vance Havner said this: God wants self before substance. Will you possess or or service? Self service substance is the divine order, and nothing counts until we give ourselves. To God personally. Your service doesn't count. Your offering doesn't count. Nothing counts until we first give ourselves to God. Now, the things we give ourselves to in this life apart from God, I need not tell you, are vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Empty. They can never satisfy. I think of many of the athletes who I used to follow when I was young. A lot of them are dead now, but there's still still a few limping around. They wore out their bodies, literally, to to win some earthly trinket or trophy. A lot of them blew the money that they had, too. And then what happens? They end up forgotten by most people with broken-down bodies but what you give to Christ the body that you give to Christ even if you wear it out it will never be forgotten by him your your service your labor is not in vain in the lord what you do for Christ so paul says present your bodies as a living sacrifice you know the old testament it placed great emphasis on the sacrifice of animals under the Levitical system, which prefigured the once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus would made on the cross. And the animals were placed on the altar of sacrifice, right? They were bound. They were bound. And then they were going to be killed. They were going to give their life up. But the Christian sacrifice, in contrast to that, is made while... They are living. It's not a one-time sacrifice. It is a continuous sacrifice. A living sacrifice. As long as you have breath within your body, you are to give it to the Lord. In its entirety. While you're living. Now listen. I'm not bragging when I say this. I, I hope i am got myself figured out right. I, I truly believe that I would die for Christ without hesitation if He called me to do so. I, I, I believe that. I also truly believe that it is harder living for Christ than dying as a martyr. Dying as a martyr is one and done. And then eternal glory. And I am in no way minimizing that. There is a martyr's crown to to be attained. But a living sacrifice is hard. Because it's a daily sacrifice. It takes constant surrender. Because the temptation to sin in your body will always be there. Always be there. The battle of the spirit against the flesh is ever present. You could sin at church. And even when your body is completely failing and you couldn't do the things you once did or commit the sins you once did, you can still sin with your tongue. You can still sin in your thought life. You still can get angry in your heart at people. And when James speaks of the testing of your faith in verses chapter one, verse three, it is not doctrine that primarily concerns him. In the context, the test is the test of endurance in temptation. the temptations that you will face while you are in this body of sin and death, as Paul said in Romans chapter six, "Who could deliver of me?" Or is it Romans seven? He says, I thank God for who? Jesus Christ. He's the only one. He's the only one. Now listen, offering your body as a living sacrifice to God is not easy, but it's not an impossibility, right? Unbelievers are dead in trespass and sin. Ephesians 2 and 1, chapter 2, verse 1. So they have no power to live a victorious life in the flesh. They're, they're dead in trespass and sin. But believers are spiritually alive in Christ. We have the power of the indwelling Spirit to do all that God commands us to do. Second Peter 1.3, according as His divine power has given to us all things, circle it that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises, watch this, that by those promises, the power of God's word, you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Don't you want to do that? A.T. Robertson, universally recognized as one of the top Greek scholars of the century, says... Regarding the phrase "divine nature," that Peter's referring to the new birth, as he does in verse 23. Kenneth Wheat says the saints have become partakers of shares in, in the divine nature. Peter is here referring to regeneration, as in First 1 Peter 1:23. 1, the divine nature, a new nature whose source is God, implanted in the inner being of the believing sinner, becomes the source of his new life and actions, and by the power, and energy, and giving him both the desire and the power to do God's will. He has escaped the corruption that is in the world. God has set us apart for himself. Peter House's says Peter's teaching here is that believers share God's di- divine nature. We don't become little gods. You know, we're not talking about Mormonism here or anything like that. No new age stuff. But we do have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have a union with Christ whereby we've become vital members of God's family. And he says having escaped reveals the Christian's complete Separation in principle and position from the world system. You know what a worldly Christian is? He hasn't hasn't escaped completely from that. He wants some things of God and some things of the world. The sinful things of the world. Because not everything in the world is sinful. But I would say to you, as Peter said here, the same divine power that was evident in Christ's death and resurrection is available to the Christian so that he can live or she can live a consecrated life to God through the knowledge of him who has called them to glory and virtue. I beseech you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice can be offered wherever your body is. And wherever you go, you take your body with you, right? Right now, right here, wherever you go. Your body tangs along. At home, at work, at school, at the gym, the altar of a living sacrifice is everywhere present. God says, present your body as a living sacrifice holy it means separated. It means completely dedicated to the Lord. You know, the burnt offering in the Old Testament was entirely consumed on the altar. Now, our bodies are not consumed as an offering to God, but they must be given in their entirety. We're living sacrifices. I'll read you from 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. Furthermore, then, watch the word. We beseech you. Brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus Christ as you have received of how you ought to walk and to please God so that you would abound more and more for you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus for this is the will of God even your sanctification you're setting apart yourself for God that you should abstain from sexual immorality That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel, his body, in sanctification, set apart for God, and honor. Not in the lust of passion, even as the Gentiles who do not know God. They haven't escaped the pollution that is in the world through lust, but you have, you are different. And then he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. What is acceptable means? It means well-pleasing. Well-pleasing. Paul said to the Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Oh, people want acceptance, don't they? Everywhere, they're looking, they're crying out for, somebody accept me. Just the way I am. Christians Christians desire to be accepted by him. In other words, our behavior well-pleasing to him. Colossians 1 9, for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Everything. You can iron your kids' clothes to the glory of God. You could put the food on the table for your family without murmuring, without complaint, so that your sacrifice to your family is well-pleasing to God. You can go to work and have a cheerful attitude and have a kind word for someone so that what you say and what you do is well-pleasing to God. That's what matters. Colossians 3.20. Children. Children. Obey your parents in all things, for this is well pleasing to dad. Now, I'm sure it is. For this is well pleasing unto the Lord. That's why you are to obey your parents. Not to avoid discipline or trouble. Not to get the things you, you think you'll get by good behavior. You may get some things because of good behavior. You may get some things because of bad behavior too. But you obey. Obey. Because it's pleasing to God when you do. Now once the animals were slain under the Old Testament, right? they were dead sacrifices. And they were acceptable to God if they were done properly for the right motives. But we know this for a fact. Just read the book of Malachi. God rejected inferior or defective sacrifices. Deuteronomy 17.1 You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or any defect, for that is a detestable thing to the Lord your God. You would never think of giving your wife a broken necklace for your anniversary. You would never think of giving your husband a broken watch for his birthday. You wouldn't think of giving your child a broken, useless toy. When the people of Israel came to worship, how much did God really ask of them? He didn't want all of their flocks. He didn't want all of their her their their fields of grain, but he required the first, and the best. Right. Nothing else mattered. It had to be the first born animal. Had to be the first fruit of the crops. He required the tithe, which was the first part, because because he, is most important. God should never get the leftovers you shouldn't get the leftovers of your your money your talent your time God should never get the leftovers he required an acceptable sacrifice to bring God an inferior sacrifice or offering would say that one did not think highly of God For the quality of the gift, someone says, indicates the value the giver places on the one receiving the gift. Think about that. The value of our offering, our sacrifice, is really an an estimation of how much we value the one to whom we are giving the gift. That's why we don't give anything inferior. And that's true in all relationships. You really, really think highly of somebody and, and you, you, you want to give them a gift. I don't. If it's within your means, I think you're going to give them a good gift, right? It's going to be meaningful. It's going to be special. You cannot offer to God your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, while at the same time Sinning in your body. It's an unacceptable worship. How many Christians, from the statistics I read, it's many, are caught up, men and even women, to a much lesser extent in pornography? And then they'll come to church. what they call worship. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. Give of your best to the master, not else is worthy his love. He gave himself for your ransom, gave up his glory above. Lay down his life without murmur, you from sin's ruin to save. Give him your heart's adoration. Give them the best that you have. Listen, you may not have much of the world's goods, world's whatever all those things are that people are going after, heart, but you got a body. Just like everybody else, you can give them that. Every part of it. Eyes, ears, hands, feet, stomach, everything. And God says, Beseech your brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto Him, which is your reasonable act of worship. That's how it's translated. Reasonable means. The Greek word is logikin. Logic. It's rational. It's intelligent. It's the right thing to do. You don't have to debate it. It's the right, logical, rational thing for a child of God to do. To worship God with his body. Jesus gave up his body for you on the cross he says this is your reasonable rational or intelligent service la truo we get the word worship or ministry from that true worship then involves every aspect of your life everything you can't as a christian divorce the activities of your life, from the worship of God. We can't do it. You can worship God with your body when you eat, when you work, when you pray, when you help others, when you serve others when you do good to people who are doing evil to you when, you, when you return kindness, when it's really undeserved. You know, we refer to Sunday as our day of worship, right? But the biblical reality is that we should never cease worshiping God. Present your body as a living act of worship. That's seven days a week. That's every hour of the day until you fall asleep at night. Three hundred and sixty-five days a year, we worship God or we should be worshiping God by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto Him. Hard message. Right? Hard message to preach. Because I don't always live it. I fail in my worship. And so do you at times. In thought, word, or deed. But you know, God brought you here this morning. I believe that. And God, God had me here this morning to preach yet one more message This one. So I pray that this word today will impact you. And if you're struggling with something that you can't seem to break free from, get some help. Talk to somebody. Satan has his ways to keep us in the grips of his power, doesn't he? But praise God, remember what I said. As difficult as it is to conquer the flesh, it's not impossible. We have everything we need for a life of faith and godliness. Brothers and sisters, we have one another. That's big. The fellowship of the saints, the prayers of the saints. I mean, God brings your names to my mind many times, and through different times of the day, and and I just pray. I, I don't know what it is you're going through. I do know some of the struggles that you're facing, the losses, the hardships, the car accidents, all of those things. But I don't know. I don't know the inward struggles. So uh, I pray, as I pray for myself, God, God, help me in the inner man. Help them in the inner man. And he will. He will. Look unto him. Nobody cares for you like Jesus. Nobody. Thank you for coming. Let's pray.